It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Each week you'll hear compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other public events presented by the Aspen Institute. Capitalism is fundamentally a good thing. Business is fundamentally good, but it often can go wrong. That's Jonathan Haidt, professor of ethical leadership at New York University's Stern School of Business. He researches the intuitive foundations of morality, politics, and religion. He's applying his research to questions around why people on the left and right see capitalism and business differently. He's also working to find out how companies can run themselves to be resistant to ethical failures. In a lecture at the Aspen Ideas Festival, Haidt gives examples of companies that perform ethically and others that have veered off course. He lays out why it pays to be ethical and suggests ethics could be the key to solving stagnant economic growth. Later, we'll talk one-on-one with Haidt about how perception drives companies to be more ethical and why millennials are increasingly seeking jobs at purpose-driven companies. Haidt also delves into the 2016 presidential race and the role of ethics there. But first, to Haidt's talk at the 2015 Aspen Ideas Festival called Why Ethics Usually Pays and How to Make It Pay More. My friends, I'm here to tell you about a drug that will change your lives. If you take this drug, it will make you happier and you'll sleep better at night. If you take this drug, newspapers will start writing nicer things about you. So your spouse and your friends will admire you more. If you take this drug, you'll get richer. So what is this miracle drug? The drug, my friends, is ethics, a commitment the highest standards of ethical leadership in everything you do. Now, I'm legally obligated to show you the warning label. There are two specific warnings that I must give you. One is that you have to take the drug every day for a year before you can expect to see clinically significant results, and don't skip any days. Secondly, the drug's efficacy varies country by country. If you're doing uh, business in Russia, um, well, it may not help you. Ethical companies are sometimes at a disadvantage in corrupt countries. Now, unfortunately, most of the world is corrupt countries. This graph from uh, uh, Transparency International shows countries with high levels of public sector corruption in red and low in yellow. So I think one of the biggest challenges for anyone who cares about global issues, global problems, one of the most important things we could do is turn this map yellow so that the drug I'm telling you about will work all over the world. Now, My talk today is gonna have four parts. I'm gonna explain to you what this drug is and how it works. I'll start by telling you the story of life on Earth. My goal there is just to give you a kind of a big picture view of human nature, which will, I hope, influence your view of business. Secondly, I'll make the business case for ethics. I'll make then the patriotic case for ethics, how ethics will help whole countries. And finally, I'll tell you what to actually do. How do you actually go about getting this drug and using it? So, part one. Much of what I'll say will be uh, from my book, The Righteous Mind. This map from Transparency International shows all the countries of the world. Those with high levels of public sector corruption are in red. Those with low levels are in yellow. One of the most important things we can do to address many global problems is find ways to turn this map yellow. In my talk today, I'll be telling you a story with four parts to it. First, I'll tell you the story of life on Earth. I'm gonna try to give you a perspective on human nature which I hope will change the way you look at business. Then I'll make the business case for ethics, showing that ethics really does pay. I'll show next that it actually pays for countries. It's a way to make your country great. And last, I'll show you how to actually do ethical systems design. So 
the story of life on Earth. I'll present two big ideas. I'll draw on two big ideas. Multi-level selection from Charles Darwin and disruptive cooperation, which is my term uh, for uh, the major transitions in evolution by John Maynard Smith and Eero Sathmary. So here we go. Those of you who've read Robert Wright's book, Non-Zero, this story will be familiar. So chapter one. The key idea here, multi-level selection, can best be understood by drawing on an old Arab proverb, uh, which goes, me against my brother, me and my brother against our cousin, me, my brother, and cousin against the stranger. Uh, this captures a very simple idea in social psychology and in evolutionary biology that Charles Darwin wrote about. Darwin noted that competition happens at multiple levels at the same time. So for example, a, a troop of chimpanzees might be competing with a different troop for control of territory, but within each troop, individuals are competing with other individuals. Any troop, any group that can suppress that competition and can cooperate is gonna be much more effective at competing with other groups. Darwin actually thought that our ethical sense evolved in part because it helped groups of our ancestors compete with other, uh, other hominids at that time. One last note, the specific quote he gave here, selfish and contentious people will not cohere and without coherence, nothing can be affected. So here is chapter one. Once upon a time, three and a half billion years ago, there were some interesting molecules on Earth. They were just strings of proteins, but they had this interesting property that they could bind to other uh, amino acids, and then those amino acids could peel off as copies. So there were some independent replicators. These were the first genes. And then, uh, around three and a half billion years ago, some of these early genes linked together so that they could only copy if all of them got copied. They found a way to put themselves all in the same boat and to link their fate so that it was one for all, all for one. Some of these strings of proteins attracted coatings of lipids, which became the first cell membranes, and these were the first cells. This is the origin of life, the archaea and the bacteria. And note that the origin of life on Earth is an act of disruptive cooperation. Um, so we fast forward a little ways. Around two billion years ago, uh, some of these uh, early prokaryotes find a way to join together to form eukaryotes. So do you remember from high school biology, do you remember the mitochondria and you learn that the mitochondria have their own DNA unrelated to that in the nucleus? What's up with that? Why would that be? And the answer is that eukaryotic cells began when an archaea cell ingested a bacterium but rather than digesting it, they actually divided labor. They joined forces and divided labor and were able to be much more productive. So this is another act of disruptive cooperation. It's a good idea, you might say, and eukaryotic cells spread around the world. Then we keep going. Some of these eukaryotes find a way to join together to form multicellular organisms, plants and animals. And the trick here is that they divide labor again. Every cell has the exact same DNA, but some of them then go on to become eye cells or nerve cells or muscle cells or sperm and eggs. Again, they're all in the same boat. It's a an act of disruptive cooperation and the earth becomes covered with plants and animals. Uh, but our story isn't over because some animals have found ways to put themselves together into groups which we call hives. Um, around 120 million years ago, we get 
the very first, the hymenoptera, the wasps, the bees, the termites, not the termites, the ants, uh, they form hives. And the hive is, again, a division of labor, all in the same boat, one for all, all for one. The queen is not the brain. The queen is just the ovary, division of labor. The hive is a true superorganism. And the biologist E.O. Wilson has written about this. He calls hives a factory inside a fortress. That's really powerful, really productive within a well-defended uh, entity. And he says about superorganisms that the secret of their success is the division of labor, as we see over and over again, putting them all in the same boat. And when they are in, uh, assembled in that way, there is no cheating because their fates are linked. This leads to massive efficiency, and it allows them to totally dominate other organisms on Earth. The eusocial or hivish insects, they are about 2% of all insect species, but they make up half of all the insect biomass on Earth. Really, really successful uh, organisms. Now, why am I talking about bees and ants in a talk about ethics and leadership? The reason is because people are hivish too. We have found ways to put ourselves together into hives as well, in ways that change the history of the world. So religions are very hivish uh, things, uh, ways to group people together, to enhance trust and cooperation. Um, <clears throat> next in our story, armies. Armies also are hivish to some degree, uh, to varying degrees. So if you want to understand how one man, one young man in his 20s, was able to go from the ruler of a very small kingdom, Macedonia, to the largest empire the world had seen uh, to that point, how did he do it in just uh, less than a decade. The answer is that he, and his father actually, developed a military innovation. They turned their soldiers into a superorganism, and again, reaped the benefits of that kind of disruptive cooperation. 2,000 years later, who's the leading power? Britain. How did tiny, tiny England, this is England in 1600, not even including Scotland, how did this little island, part of an island, grow so that by the beginning of the 20th century, they controlled a quarter of the land mass of the Earth. Now, there are a lot of reasons for Britain's success, but one of them was corporate law. The Brits, along with the Dutch and a few others, they innovated a political and economic and legal arrangement that allowed merchants to pool their capital and their risk to undertake gigantic ventures that nobody could have undertaken on their own. So this is a definition from the first uh, uh, treatise on corporate law in the English language. I won't read the whole thing. I'll just read this part. A corporation is a collection of many individuals united into one body acting as an individual. So a corporation is, in its very origin and intention, a corporation is a superorganism. That's why we have them and we get all the benefits of superorganisms. Actually, it's a little different because up till now, superorganisms are out for themselves only. Corporations are a little bit different in that they are chartered originally to provide some public benefit because the king or the queen or the parliament decides it would be good to have people do something. It would be good for society. So let's grant a charter. Let's grant a corporate charter. Um, and of course, corporations do provide vast public external goods. They create most of the wealth, wealth of nations. But we must never forget that some are also predatory. And this is what we need to focus on. How do you reduce that? So I've told you that the story of life on Earth has many chapters. Each chapter is a new form of disruptive cooperation. So what's next? What's the next chapter that we're going to perhaps move into in the 21st century? Well, maybe, maybe all the countries will unite. Maybe the whole Earth will unite to compete with other planets. Or maybe, maybe the whole solar system will unite so that we can compete with other solar systems. Okay, now that 
doesn't make any sense. The next stage for us is not going to be bigger, it's going to be better. And I believe it's going to be ethics. It's going to be really good, pragmatic, psychologically informed ethics. So um, to return to uh, Darwin's insight, um, the ethical sense evolved because it helped groups to cooperate, and we're good at using it in many of our organizations, but when we don't take full advantage of it in business, in government, in so many other human endeavors, we don't take full advantage. It's as though we're leaving money on the table, as it were. We could be doing a lot better. Um, so uh, that's the uh, story of life on Earth. Now I'd like to make the business case for ethics, although I'll have someone else make it for me. Buddha, like sages in many, many uh, great cultures, made the business case for ethics to their followers. Set your heart on doing good, do it over and over again, and you will be filled with joy. A fool is happy until his mischief turns against him, and a good man may suffer until his goodness flowers. Now, if you apply this to business, here's what you get. Um, a good reputation is very valuable, and there are three mechanisms that have been studied. So reputation, illegal conduct is costly, uh, and ethical companies are more efficient. Um, so the research shows, I can summarize it for you here, a good reputation is monetarily advantageous by a number of mechanisms. First, if you're an ethical company, if consumers trust you, you can charge higher prices. You're a trusted brand. Second, it's much easier to recruit talent. Especially nowadays, the millennials, and this is happening in other countries as well, young people really want to work for a company that they believe in, that they trust, that they think is doing good. So ethical companies increasingly have an advantage in recruiting top talent and in retaining talent. They get better press coverage for free, and they get easier access to capital. So Deutsche Bank did a, a review of hundreds of academic studies a few years ago, and they concluded that every study that looked at the matter found that companies with high ratings for corporate social responsibility or uh, environmental, social, and governance factors have a lower cost of capital in terms of debt and equity. They go on to say, the market recognizes that these companies are lower risk than other companies, and it rewards them accordingly. Now, that may not be what Buddha had in mind, but I think it's a great example of how a good man may suffer until his goodness flowers. Your goodness will flower if you're just patient. Um, secondly, illegal conduct is very costly. So one academic study that tried to quantify the costs of having a scandal, an ethics scandal, found uh, that uh, you get a large and immediate drop in the stock price. The financial performance of the company suffers for years. Most of that drop, most of that uh, uh, decreased price is actually due to reputation, not to the fine itself. Evidence of the reputational hit comes from the finding that if you look at the board members of the company at the time of the scandal and you trace them out to the future, they serve on less prestigious company boards from then on. Um, one study concludes, reputational penalties arise as customers, suppliers, providers of financial capital, and other related parties revise their terms of trade once a firm's willingness to act opportunistically is revealed. And that, I think, is a nice example of how mischief can turn against you. Um, third, ethical companies are more efficient. Let's take a look at the uh, well-known company Zappos, which has uh, an amazing corporate culture, a culture uh, not just of happiness, but of trust and cooperation. Um, I've, I've spoken out there a couple times. I've, I've met with, uh, uh, with the executives, with the, uh, with the, uh, the employees. Um, and one of my graduate students, Jesse Kluver, uh, did some st uh, structured interviews out there a couple years ago. One of his questions was, tell me about a time when you felt really alive working at Zappos. Uh, and the employee said, in the early days, we were in serious competition with Endless.com. I looked forward to going to work every day. I knew everyone had my back, 
and no one would undermine my efforts. Anyone would drop anything to help you. We were all in it together. So, you know, if bees could talk, I think that's what they would say. <laughs> Contrast that with the culture at UBS, the giant Swiss bank constantly in the news for scandals, constantly paying very high fines. Um, a few years ago, there was a, a ro uh, an individual trader uh, who lost $2 billion for the company. He'd been placing bets, taking advantage of a trick of timing on legitimate uh, uh, deals. He was trying to get a little edge for himself. Uh, the company lost $2 billion. They said it was all due to one rogue trader. It's not our fault. Punish him. And it appears that they were right. But as this reporter from the Times found when he, uh, uh, when he dug into it and interviewed people, um, uh, James Stewart wrote, Mr. Adeboli's unauthorized trading also seems consistent with a culture at UBS that stressed individual advancement over team efforts. So it was not such a surprise that this rogue, uh, that, the, that they would get this rogue because this is what the culture is incentivizing. Um, in further interviews, he finds, uh, the problem isn't the culture, one of the bankers told me. The problem is that there wasn't any culture. Everyone is separate. People thought of them, uh, People cut their own deals, and it's every man for himself. People thought of themselves first, and then maybe the bank, if they thought about it at all. So to summarize this part, um, Zappos takes advantage of multi-level selection and cooperation and reaps big gains in efficiency. UBS does not. So um, you might be wondering, OK, I'm interested. You've made a case that this drug might be helpful. But before I take it, I want to see some clinical trials. I want to see that this drug is really going to pay off for me and my company, and even my shareholders. So uh, a number of organizations have created lists and ranks of the most ethical companies. There are actually hundreds of ranks. A number of these rankers have then created portfolios, and they track over time. If you invested your money in our top companies, how would you do? So for example, um, uh, Ethisphere, uh, produces a list of the world's most ethical companies, and when they take their list compared to either the S&P or, in this case, the MSCI, when they compare it to a, a this is a global index, but it works for the S&P uh, 500 too, they find significant outperformance, uh, especially in the years since the financial crisis. Uh, the Good Company Index uh, finds the same thing with their portfolio. It's more recent. It only goes back to uh, 2012, but they too find uh, a very substantial outperformance. Now, you have to take these comparisons with a grain of salt because most of these organizations, the, the ranking is not done by academics. It's done by people, often in a for-profit company, that is consulting with some of these companies. So you have to wonder about conflicts of interest. But I think that I think this finding is real for two reasons. First, I've talked with a couple of small outfits that I'm, I'm sure have no conflicts of interest. This is a group Trust Across America, and they have a very different way of ranking trustworthy companies. And they also find very substantial and continuous outperformance by the most ethical companies. Um, a couple of months ago, I was in Korea. I met with, the, with Sust Invest, which is the first Korean company trying to rank Korean companies so that investors can channel their money towards companies with better uh, CSR, better ESG. And they too find, just looking at the top Korean companies compared to the Korean index, they too find substantial and sustained outperformance. And so what this means is that if you want to get an edge, well, ethics pays. Now, the other reason why I think that this result is real is because when academics have gotten their hands on the full data set and they dig into it, 
they find that it's real. They find over and over again, depending on, you know, regardless of how you cut it, they do find the outperformance. So this is one extensive academic study. They looked into this uh, list of 100 best companies, and they found that, yes, these stocks had outperformed the market by 3% per year since 1984. Compounded, that's gigantic. Uh, another study found that perceived integrity is the key. Uh, this study, the 100 best companies, is based very heavily on employee reports. What do employees say about what it's like to work there? And when employees can trust management, can trust each other, that's the key thing. That's the predictor that leads to the sustained financial performance. Um, now, those of you who, who know a lot about investing, uh, you may know that you know, there's all these schemes to beat the market, and managers almost never can, because the market prices in all the available information at least in theory. So what's going on here? How can this be happening? And that's what Edmonds asked in a follow-up paper. Uh, and his conclusion was that it may be that the stock market uses traditional valuation methodologies devised for the 20th century firm and based on physical assets which cannot accommodate intangibles easily. In other words, perhaps because people still have a kind of a cynical view of corporations and behavior, they don't take ethics into account. And current models don't price it in. So if you want to make money yourself as an investor, bet on ethical companies. So that's the business case for ethics. Now I'll briefly make what you might call the patriotic case for ethics, which goes as follows. The advanced economies are almost all facing the same two problems. The first problem, stagnant growth. So this graph shows um, GDP growth rates, annual, annual growth rates, uh, from 1964 through 2014. I cut off the graph here at 2000. If you just look at it here, you see the downward trend, but maybe you could say, well, it was down, but then it's back up. Maybe things will change. But if you add in the data since 2014, the downward trend is unmistakable. All the advanced countries, all the Western countries are zero to 3%, sometimes negative. So this is a huge problem. We're seeing uh, ever more talk about stagnant, uh, stagnant growth, not just in Europe and America, but in Japan. Um, and even China is slowing down, although, of course, it had to slow down from 12 or 13% a year. Uh, so um, that's the first problem. Second problem, um, unequal growth. So whatever growth we have is mostly going to the top. This graph shows how uh, different segments of the American population have fared in terms of wages. These are raw wages. How have raw wages changed since 1979 for different segments? For the top 5%, they've gone way up. For the bottom 10% in red or 50th percentile in green, they've gone down slightly. Now, this is raw wages. Once you include in taxes and benefits, that actually turns out, the government policy actually does uh, reduce inequality. So the bottom in America actually is doing a little better than it was in 1979. But the top is doing a lot better, especially the top 1%. So this is a huge problem in America, and it's a problem to some extent in almost all of the Western countries. So you got these problems. You've got economists writing constantly and arguing with each other. What should we do? What should we do to get growth going? And you know, I'm not an economist, but these are the things I read about in the newspaper. I can't say which one will work. All I can say is they're always arguing. They've been having this conversation for a long time, and things aren't changing. So maybe it's time to try something new. Maybe they could try ethics. Maybe ethics could solve these problems better than standard economic remedies. Uh, so think about it. Um, I've already shown you that ethical companies produce more gains. They're more productive. There's more productivity. So if we could move companies more into the ethical column, we'd have GDP growth. Secondly, there is reason to think that ethical companies will reduce income inequality. And here's the way to think about this. 
many people think, as, as I did before I joined a business school, many people think, well, business, oh, that's all about competition. You know, they're just, they're just out to compete, and oh, that's so ugly. But if you actually talk to business people and you say, what do you do all day long? How much of your day is spent competing? How much of your day is spent cooperating? It's overwhelmingly cooperation. All day long, business people are looking for ways to cooperate with various stakeholders. Stakeholder theory, originally uh, described by Ed Freeman at the University of Virginia, um, it's just a way of thinking about a firm as being composed of cooperative relationships. You've got to get them all to work for the firm to be successful in the long run. And when you think about these other stakeholders in this way, well, you want them to be successful. You want the relationship to be mutually beneficial and you're thinking long term. Ethics is easy, ethics is common, uh, ethics pays really, really well. But there was a a philosophical change that began in the United States in the 1980s, a shift towards uh, what is sometimes called shareholder primacy. And here the philosophy is that the firm actually uh, is owned by the shareholders. The shareholders are really the ones that the firm has to please. Once you think about it this way, suddenly the employees, the customers, everybody else is an obstacle to profits. And the more you can squeeze them, the more profits for your shareholders. And there are all kinds of really, really clever ways to squeeze all of those shareholders, all of those other stakeholders, and get more revenue for the shareholders. So just to give one example, we're seeing more and more clever schemes to basically not pay workers the wages uh, that, that they've earned. I saw this all over. I just traveled in Asia. Uh, migrant workers, construction workers are constantly ripped off. But it happens in America, too. And so when you have work, uh, businesses thinking of their workers as the principal cost that they need to reduce by any means, certainly any legal means and sometimes even illegal means, well, then you get this. You get no gains for those on the bottom. So what I'm suggesting is that if you're concerned about these two problems, then um, ethics may be the answer to both. So finally, if you're convinced that better business ethics should be a national priority, that any country that does this will see better growth and more equitable growth. So what do you do? What do you actually do? I'd like to tell you about a, a project I'm involved in called ethicalsystems.org, uh, where we're working on how do you do ethical systems design? Um, so when I first joined uh, the Stern School of Business in 2011, uh, I studied moral psychology, but I knew nothing about how it works in business. And boy, business, I mean, it's just so complicated. It's you know, people within organizations, and there's you know, all the, so much law and, and, and uh, leadership theory. I mean, there's just so much to learn. I couldn't keep track of it all. So I created a website. I invited experts to join. Uh, we now have 22, uh, 22 collaborators. These are mostly professors in business schools. And the heart of our site is that these collaborators got together uh, to create these research pages. So look at all the things you need to know to think about business ethics, accounting, uh, research on cheating, compliance and ethics, conflicts of interest. There's just so much you need to understand to improve business ethics. Um, I wrote the page on ethics pays. And so if you go there, if you go to ethicalsystems.org, go to the ethics pays page, you'll see the studies that I've told you about today. Uh, just another example, if you go to our research tab and you click on leadership, uh, you'll get our leadership page and that it has a little introduction, and then it lists specific advice. Here are specific things that you should try to do, and they all link to the research that, so that supports them. Um, but ethical systems design isn't just ethical leadership. Leadership is crucial. You're not going to get improvements in ethics without, uh, without tone at the top, without leadership from the top. But here's the way that we've come to think of it. So a business is composed of people, and these individuals 
have a certain psychology, and boy are we good at understanding that individual psychology. Those of you who've read the book Nudge by Thaler and Sunstein, there's so much great work now on how can you make small changes in environments to produce big outcome differences. So if you remind, if you remind people about ethics, if you have them list the Ten Commandments or you, uh, uh, you, know, or you post you know, any sort of a word or, uh, uh, um, or you have them make a pledge just before they make a decision, they will cheat less, they will be more honest. So there's all kinds of ways you can influence individual choice and behavior. But individuals aren't just out there floating around, they're in groups, and these groups have emergent properties. These groups have cultures. And so culture is this middle level. You've gotta understand the culture that emerges in any group of interacting people, and there's all kinds of ways, there's a lot of research on how do you improve corporate culture, and then how do you measure it, which is a sticking point, but we're working on uh, um, identifying the best measurement techniques. But these groups, whether they're companies or divisions within companies, they're not moving around in a vacuum. They're moving around within a national culture, which is constantly changing. They're moving around within a legal system, uh, which is constantly, uh, constantly changing. And so you've got to think at three levels simultaneously. And if you can get alignment when the laws at the top actually support an, a culture of ethics rather than a culture of performance. You know, when you have performance-based bonuses, that incentivizes performance at any price, any ethical price. So you gotta get the regulation to support changes towards better ethics, and then that culture has to be aligned with the individual incentives. So you have to, it's really complicated. You have to think about all these things at the same time. Um, I'll leave you with what to me is the best single idea I've encountered in my, in my uh, uh, four years now in the world of, of business and business schools. We had a talk a, a couple years ago at Stern by a philosopher, David Schmitz, and he just made this offhand comment. He doesn't even remember making it, but I, I told him about it, and he said, yeah, maybe I said that. He said, at its best, a free market society is a game that you can only win by making other people better off. So if the only way to get rich is by making something that people want, well, that's great. That's what leads to gigantic external, uh, uh, you know, positive externalities. That's what leads to creating wealth. Of course, we don't live in that society. There are still many ways to get rich without helping other people. But to a first approximation, we're getting there, and that's the way we need to go. I was at this conference in Korea a couple months ago, and uh, Jack Ma, the founder of Alibaba, who's one of the richest men in China, he said exactly the same thing, but with fewer words. He said, the secret of success is help others. And so when you think about it this way, you see that capitalism is fundamentally a good thing, business is fundamentally good, but it often can go wrong. There are many temptations to go in a more predatory way. And so if you start from this perspective, I think it's a, it's a, it's a really promising roadmap for how to think about business ethics in the future. And so in conclusion, I've told you the story of life on Earth. I've told you that it has many chapters and that the next chapter is going to be ethics. I've made the business case for ethics, that in the long run, ethics actually pays. And if you think that sounds uh, de degrading or reductionist, well, Buddha said it, so it must be okay. Uh, and finally, I've made the patriotic case, saying that if you want your country to be great, and especially in America, where we think about our country as a beacon of opportunity and fairness, the American dream, I think it's imperative that we make business ethics a national priority. And so, my friends, that's why I say I have a drug that may change your lives. Thank you.
That's Jonathan Haidt, a social psychologist at the NYU Stern School of Business. He spoke at the Aspen Ideas Festival in 2015. I caught up with Haidt over Skype recently to talk more about ethics and business. First, he went over his assertions in his Aspen lecture. So my claims in the talk were based mostly on the academic research that I've been reviewing. Uh, I co-run a site called ethicalsystems.org, and we have a, a whole page where we, we gather together all the research we can find on whether ethics actually pays for companies in the long run. Um, the story for CSR, for corporate social responsibility, is generally positive, although not always. The story for internal ethics, that is, can you trust the people you work with, that seems to always be associated uh, with better financial returns in the long run. Uh, so that's mostly what my talk was based on, that we're, we're seeing this in the research, uh, and more and more we're seeing purpose-driven companies, conscious capitalist companies. Uh, we're seeing more and more the idea that if you strive to make as much money as you can, well, in the long run, that actually sometimes backfires. Do businesses typically begin as ethical entities? And what factors come into play to make them unethical? Um, when businesses start up, they they seem often to be animated by a, a guiding passion, and it's usually a s relatively small group of people who really can trust each other. So I think that uh, startup small companies often uh, have a very good ethical profile. As they grow, it's just harder to control. It's harder to um, uh, to have those human relationships that. Um, uh, that, that will govern a, a group and, and keep it keep it together. So there are all kinds of problems as companies grow. When companies face hard times, this is when we seem to get a lot more corner cutting. When a company fears that if they you know if they don't get this deal, they're done for. Well, we're going to get the deal even if we have to deceive to get it. Uh, you know, my general view. I'm I'm new to the field of of um, business uh, business research. I only joined the uh, the Stern School of Business in 2011, um, and uh, you know, my, my general feel is that corporate America has cleaned up its act a lot um, in the last 20 years, especially on issues of treatment of women and minorities and, and overall climate, um, on issues of compliance. So I do think that the trends are moving in the right direction. And we're helped along by the fact that young people, millennials in particular, um, seem to really value uh, the, the, the culture and the ethos of a company. They, they don't just want to make as much money as they can. They actually want to work for an ethical business. So I think we are seeing that the stars are aligning for companies to be paying more and more attention to getting a good ethical climate. So back to what you just said about millennials. Um, what are the attractive qualities for this group when it comes to job searching? They seem to care less about job security than their parents and grandparents did. Uh, the idea that you might find a good company and work there for life, that was an idea that really there was some reality to that in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, but that was a temporary period where American companies, big American companies, were shielded from international competition. So young people today have not grown up thinking that. At the same time, there's a general progression of societies. This is something you see as societies get wealthier and more secure all over the world, where uh, the older generation raised with poverty or instability is more concerned about security, but their children raised in peace and prosperity, um, they want more out of life. They're more concerned about expressing themselves, about being part of a cause, about making the world a better place. So this is something I saw in a big way 
uh, last year I traveled across Asia for three months. And in these rapidly changing countries, we're seeing young people with radically different values and frankly, more progressive, politically progressive values generally than their parents. Uh, and so we're, we're, we're at the leading edge of that in the United States. We were the first country to reach mass prosperity, but the process continues uh, um, with it increasing attention focused not just on gay rights now, but actually on, uh, you know, on transsexual rights. So, so there's all kinds of trends that generally, I would say, socially point in a sort of a leftward di- uh, direction politically. In general, are there industries that are unethical and industries that are more ethical? Yes, absolutely. Uh, and you could almost predict which ones without knowing anything about the businesses. Um, the reason is just think about feedback loops. So um, companies that make high-end consumer products, think Patagonia or, uh, you know, or sort of high-end food companies, they're appealing to educated consumers who are not just shopping for the best sensory experience. They're shopping for something that speaks about them, their clothing, your car, these become part of your identity. So uh, companies that make consumer goods tend, there's a lot of feedback on them. The consumers can rate the companies. So consumer companies tend to do pretty well, whereas companies that deal directly with other businesses, so, uh, you know, Archer Daniels Midland or or the big food uh, agricultural companies that consumers don't buy from, they have very little restraint on them. Same thing with mining, extractive industries, uh, where the rewards for violating environmental laws or treating workers badly, the rewards can be gigantic and the feedback loops are often weak. Um, So yes, industries vary a lot in their ethics. You've written that people care more about looking good than being good. How big of a driving force is perception in a company's decision to become more ethical? Oh, it's gigantic. So, um, um, uh, a big part of my book, The Righteous Mind, is is the thesis of Glaucon, who's a character in Plato's Republic. Uh, Glaucon says that really we only act ethically because we think someone's watching. And if a man had the ring of Gyges, if a man had a magical ring that would make him invisible, what man would not help himself to the treasures of his neighbors, to his neighbors' wives and, and, and servants? Uh, what man would not behave abominably? And I think there's a lot of truth to that. Um, with our, the people who are close to us, we love them, we wouldn't hurt them. But when we're interacting with strangers, yeah, if you remove, if you remove um, accountability, if you, if you uh, let people act in a way with no responses, they often will act quite, quite badly. Um, companies are even more like this than individuals. Uh, I talk with my students here at Stern their experiences in companies, we just talked about this yesterday, uh, about uh, CSR, corporate social responsibility. They almost all agreed it's done for PR purposes. Companies do things because they feel they have to. They make a big show of it. They're not that committed to actually saving the world. They'd rather organize an event where all the new recruits go out, help children for an hour, and then they have a six-hour party to do team building. And the, the helping the kids was just sort of a, an excuse to have a team building exercise. So uh, companies are very much driven by perception, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Maybe it has to be that way. You say ethics should be a national priority. Should the government play a role in getting businesses to become more ethical? The government already does play a role, and it's been, uh, it, it began that role right after or during the Civil War. Uh, Every 10 or 20 years, it steps it up. Uh, We get another set of regulations for business. Uh, This is essential. You you have to have government uh, uh, intervention, government rule setting uh, to create the playing field on which the game is played. 
the question is, can government do it better? And can they do it better by focusing on ethics per se? So since the um, uh, since the, the Enron and WorldCom scandals in 2001, we got Sarbanes-Oxley, uh, we've gotten uh, more and more emphasis on um, companies having good ethics and compliance programs. Uh, the laws for those actually go back to the early 1990s. The problem is that nobody knows how to define ethics in business, so companies end up just having good compliance programs. And then the New York, well, the, the Federal Reserve or other regulatory bodies, they end up rewarding companies if they can show that they have good compliance programs. But think about what kind of company would you want to work in? A company in which everyone's always focused on check the box. Did this meet the rules? Did you, did you meet the, the laws for compliance? In such a company, nobody's thinking about ethics. They resent the intrusive bureaucratic meddling they have a lot of lawyers who try to figure out, well, here's the, here, here's the letter of the law. How can we get around it? It's so much more fun. It's so much more trusting if you could work in a company that has ethics, where people actually trust each other. So that's the big challenge we face now. Um, and the social science community is beginning to come together to help advise the government and work with the government um, to help them reward not just compliance, but actual ethics. So I was reading a blog that you wrote about ethics, and you say, quote, the bottom line is that Buddha was right. On average, goodness, flowers, and mischief will bring a company to grief. We still live in a world in which there are few too many ways to profit from deception, fraud, and other kinds of business mischief. So that made me wonder, what do you think about how that applies to the current state of politics in the presidential election? There's a basic fact about human psychology, which is that we are short-sighted. Um, we are animals that respond very strongly to current triggers. Often we know what the right course is, what the best course is in the long run, but we find ourselves powerless to honor that. Everybody who's made New Year's resolutions knows how hard it is to keep them. Uh, so th the problem in human affairs is often how do you motivate people or get people to think more long term? Uh, what I find in my discussions with my students is that is that the pressures that they face in their jobs, the pressures they often face to cut corners, to hide something, to mislead, are so intense. And the, um, it's because something has to be done right now or by tomorrow and, and people are counting on us. And if we don't get this, this is gonna screw everything else up. Um, in the short run, the pressures are intense. But as soon as people take a longer view, a longer term view about their lives, their careers, um, about the company's life and career, then suddenly ethics makes a lot more sense. Um, ethics does not always pay in the short run. Uh, you can often make more money by cheating people, by tricking your customers, by squeezing the employees. Um, but to the extent that the reputation of your company matters, to the extent that the morale of your employees matters, companies that commit to doing the right thing in the long run generally can weather those short-term setbacks, and the research shows they reap bigger rewards in the long run. So at least in business, companies that think about the short-term and neglect the long-term, in the long run, they go out of business. Unfortunately, in politics, there is no similar selection mechanism. We only have two parties. Parliamentary systems uh, are, 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 are more adaptive uh, in, in this way, but we have a two-party system. Um, a party can say whatever its, its researchers tell it, whatever its market researchers tell it, it can say whatever it wants to get elected. And if it was deceiving, if it was wrong, that doesn't mean it's going to disappear. It's not going to go out of business. The parties don't go out of business, at least not in the last 100, 150, 200 years. Um, so politics is very much driven by people making promises that appeal to people's 
baser motives at times, to their self-interest, to their group, uh, group prejudices. Um, and there's no natural check on this. So this is the big problem with democracy. In fact, I think what we're seeing this year um, is the founder's worst nightmare. And this is why they didn't want a democracy. They were afraid of, the, of, of tidal waves of passion among the people. They wanted a republic. And they designed a complicated system so that policy would not be made by, uh, by the masses reacting emotionally. Uh, we've weakened some of those constraints. There were good reasons why we went to more direct election or, or closer to direct election of uh, senators and presidents. Uh, but in a way, we're, uh, this year, we're seeing the, the dangers, or I should just say, we're seeing the effects of a populist tidal wave. So in your talk, you mentioned that ethics could actually have an impact on macroeconomics. Can you elaborate on that? Yes, we are so deep into a several year discussion of income inequality. Um, this is it's the major topic that people have been talking about for a number of years now. Uh, and a point of, that I was trying to make in the talk is that sometimes um, sometimes there are some indirect solutions to problems. And to the extent that companies uh, that companies begin to care more about business ethics, that ends up making them treat the, their employees better. They're not looking at, at their employees as their major cost to be minimized. They're looking at them more as an asset to be invested in. And when companies treat their employees that way, they end up paying them more. They train them more. They make them more valuable. And income inequality goes down. We've had the idea in America since the 1970s, especially the 1980s, that uh, the executives have a fiduciary duty only to the shareholders, that their job is to make the most money for the shareholders. And that is not true. That was an ideology. It's not literally or legally true. Uh, executives have a duty to the company. Uh, the shareholders are not the owners of the company. They actually just own a claim on the profits of the company. So um, we had a kind of an, an ideology that steered us towards a more sort of uh, brutal uh, uh, profit above all else uh, or shareholder above all else um, ideology. And that is beginning to turn. Uh, the business community is beginning to move away from that in a lot of industries. And as it does so, my hope is, my expectation is um, that um, it leads to a different relationship to workers, ends up creating more prosperity overall. So if you're creating more prosperity and it's shared more widely, you've solved the income inequality problem, or at least you've reduced it. Jonathan Haidt, thank you for taking the time to speak with us. Oh, Tricia, my pleasure. That's Jonathan Haidt, Professor of Ethical Leadership at New York University's Stern School of Business. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast, Aspen Ideas To Go, on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, rate the show. It helps spread the word about the podcast. Discover more about the Aspen Ideas Festival at aspenideas.org. Follow the festival year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs at the Aspen Institute. Thank you for listening.